This is Campus on the Common, a podcast of bright ideas from Emerson College's School of Communication. I'm Emerson College alumnus and podcasting professor Chance Dorland. Broadcasting from Emerson College's School of Communication in Boston, Massachusetts, Campus on the Common provides an expert view into the field of media and communication through the lens of academic experts and industry professionals from Emerson and beyond. Exploring ideas like multimedia storytelling, media ethics, and how new technologies affect the communication industry. Boston is a sports town, and Emerson College students can take advantage of the success of Boston sports teams through the School of Communications sports comm major and minor programs. To learn more about Boston's most recent sports success and how Emerson programs are preparing the next generation of sports broadcasters and leaders, I spoke with Department of Communication Studies Assistant Professor Michael Park. I'm Michael Park. I'm an assistant professor at Emerson College. I specialize in sports communication and also media law. So, you know, it would be free speech um, and, uh, you know, communication law, the media industries. And uh, with the sports communication, my specialty really is uh, coming from the perspective of a critical cultural perspective. And so it isn't necessarily like a, a skills-based um, uh, perspective, right? So I'm looking at uh, for instance, sports and its relation with, uh, you know, the military and sort of issues of, of, of masculinity, et cetera. Uh, and so, um, you know, at, at Emerson, we have, um, you know, obviously a sports communication major um, and also a, a minor as well as a graduate program in public relations with a focus on sports communication. Uh, and so we're taking, we're looking at sports communication from really from a holistic uh, standpoint, and so you get a, a, a very much a, a strong foundation in sports communication as a as both a, you know as a liberal art, but also with many of the uh, skills and sort of business background that you would need to help uh, certainly uh, uh, you know a, a new sports comm graduate um, to be armed with that uh, that knowledge and that training to be a successful sports communication professional. So, Michael, it's not going to come as any surprise to you, certainly not to myself, uh, after doing my undergraduate degree at Emerson and now teaching a class this semester. And I think anybody who knows anything about Boston, certainly if they come and visit, you know, they know it's a sports town. And since I came here in 2005, I think fans have been very spoiled. Uh, In addition to the sports franchise victories, this century, the Red Sox broke that infamous curse. They then continued to go on and break it again several times. So um, before we talk more about sports communication at Emerson College, please, Michael, briefly remind us of the history that the Red Sox had in 2004. Yeah, you know, it's so, so they, you know, of course, there was the, uh, you know, it's called the curse of the Bambino, right? This idea that they, the Red Sox haven't won a World Series uh, since 1918. Right. And of course, they broke that curse in 2004. And it's called the Curse of the Bambino because the idea was that Red Sox, uh, Babe Ruth played for the Red Sox and then was sort of infamously, uh, uh, you know, let go and traded to the, to the uh, uh, Yankees. And so that the idea was that that was sort of the, the, uh, the genesis of this curse. 
Um, and so that's a long time, right? You think about, um, you know, for, you know, 1918 on to 2004, um, not quite a hundred years, but, but close to it. Um, and I will uh, also add, which is, you know, very interesting, an interesting fact, an interesting development um, is that, that, you know, if you look back at the Red Sox uh, history of the early 20th century and their record, they won five world championships in the early 20th century. And uh, they won five championships within 15 years. And the last one was 1918. Um, and if we then sort of fast forward to today, and of course, the Red Sox then won it um, post-1918. It wasn't until 2004. But now, you know, the Red Sox have won four world championships uh, in 14 years. Um, and of course, you know, 2018 is a hundred year, you know, think of the anniversary since 1918. But what's really interesting is, you know, if they, let's say, win another one within, uh, let's say next year, that would be, um, that would be five within, uh, uh, you know, 15 years. And so let me back up. I should say they won five in, in the early 20th century within 15 years. So now, you know, you can think about, is history repeating itself or will it repeat itself, right, is, is an interesting, um, just kind of interesting thing to think about. Of course, this is a nightmare scenario for, for Boston fans, but it is interesting to think about, well, certainly, you know, the Red Sox, um, you know, they didn't have much luck in the 20th century, but they, the early 20th century, they won, you know, multiple world championships. And we're seeing that, of course, uh, again, with the Red Sox being that team of the early 21st century, at least, and then, you know, but you got to wonder, I mean, I'm, I sort of look at the facts and history and you're like, will history repeat itself, right? And again, that's certainly a, a nightmare scenario for Boston fans, but it's an interesting fact and statistic to kind of think about, um, you know, moving forward, right? But, but certainly Boston is is the team of the, the, uh, the early 21st century, just like they were the team of the early 20th century, but of course they had, of course, that, that long drought. Um, but, um, and, and, and another thing I want to add is, is um, you know, Boston certainly has, it now has the highest, uh, I think the second highest payroll. It's kind of, depending on what report you're looking at, but certainly one of the, the top two highest payrolls. And, and you know, for the longest time, the Yankees were kind of perceived as this, you know, evil empire, right? They had the highest payrolls. There was sort of perennial, uh, you know, playoff uh, World Series contenders. And now you got to think, well, is that, that moniker now been uh, transferred over and it's sort of the Red Sox. And, and yeah, I mean, I think they certainly have been sort of spoiled uh, at least in the early 21st century. And, and so, you know, they were kind of these gutty little underdogs, right. Especially prior to 2004. And now it's sort of, they're the, they're the big alpha, alpha dog, you know, out there in, in, in baseball. Um, but uh, so, but, it, but it, that, I just thought that fact, you know, especially winning in, in 2018, um, and looking back at their history um, from the 20th century, early 21st, uh, early 20th century, and then the early 21st century, there's kind of some eerie similarities there. I mean, but I don't know if that necessarily means it foreshadows, you know, a, a drought. But you know, but you know, we're talking about baseball, and it's a it's a game full of uh, people that are superstitious, and and you know, that's kind of the, the superstition kind of ethos in, in, in baseball that that I think a lot of players and, and even fans kind of. Uh, uh, have either adopted or, or kind of, you know, sort of think about, have on their minds. So. 
as you were comparing the Red Sox to the New York Yankees, I, I, I felt like a, a bunch of people were just going to break into the room and stop the, uh, the interview. That type of thing often yeah. doesn't fly <laughs> here in Boston, Massachusetts. So you're yeah. a very brave man, Michael. But, but I like the comparison because, yeah, it's different. You know, the Patriots, before you know, their rise to fame, they, they weren't what they are now. And the Patriots kind of are the New York Yankees of, of, of the NFL in a way. So I think that there's some, some, some different uh, comparisons that you can make lots of different ways and continue to do so. Um, but, but I love how you mentioned uh, money. And that's, that's a way New York yeah. is often considered as well. Um, one thing that I loved, um, I heard recently, um, just at a mixer for professors here at Emerson College, someone talked about um, the reason that, that this person, this professor thought that the, the Red Sox have done so well after breaking that initial curse mm-hmm. is because they knew when to let people go. What do you think about that idea? You know, well, well, of course, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, we think about, uh, of course, Moneyball, right, in hold to sabermetrics and sort of the big data uh, you know, analysis of players and how that certainly has changed. And, and that, you know, certain philosophy uh, and sabermetrics being adopted in Boston uh, pretty early on, and I think uh, many of those um, you know, the adoption of, let's say, sabermetrics and the way to evaluate players very much uh, helped lead, you know, Boston to that first World Series game, uh, World Series victory, I should say. Um, and, and I don't think that's, you know, that's sort of now how players, I mean, sort of teams, when they're building, you know, when they're building their team, they're building their franchise, always having in mind, um, certainly, you know, you think about uh, a sabermetrics and trying to find uh, some kind of, you know, some kind of edge of the competition, right? Now, what's interesting is, you know, when Oakland, um, you know, adopted it, you know, they sort of did it early on when a lot of players weren't exactly doing it, uh, you know, and using the data analysis they were uh, uh, to evaluate value and players, uh, other teams did, including Boston. Um, but the difference is, you know, teams like, uh, like Boston, like LA, uh, certainly have more money, right? Certainly have more money, to expend um, on whether it's uh, uh, not just the players, but you think about management, you think about consultants, you think about, you know, all the analytics. And so, you know, at first when Oakland had, um, you know, there was kind of a, a, a competitive advantage, so to speak, in the sense that there were these early adopters and, and they really had to, right? Because they had, they didn't have a lot of money and they were certainly, you know, kind of in some ways, kind of their backs were against the wall. And they had to figure out, well, how do we, how do we, you know, try to set up a, a winning team with with a very low payroll at our at our disposal? Um, and, and so, you know, there certainly was a, a competitive advantage to a certain point until other teams and really the whole league started to adopt very much, um, you know, the same philosophy and uh, ways of of evaluating players and, and using uh, either sabermetrics or some form of it and different algorithms. Um, but it, at the end, it's going to be, you know, the big, you know, uh, you think about uh, the teams with the most money now can certainly uh, now that they'll be introduced to these same measures um, and sabermetrics uh, and, and analytics that, that that competitive advantage is no longer there. In fact, um, you know, if anything, it's the bigger, richer teams that that perhaps will get advantage because they do have more money that you can expend more more resources on um this type of uh data analytics and evaluation 
of players and franchises. And so, um, so in that sense, it's, it's, you know, it certainly has benefited um, the bigger, richer teams, right. Including, uh, including Boston. And you're talking about, well, you know, I think that whole evaluation of when to let players go is also, you know, very much uh, a result of, you know, the analytics and looking at uh, all the statistics um, and, and looking at, you know, when, you know, certain, players, you know, when their value is up based on, you know, sort of you look at history and you take all that big data and you collect it and, you know, then you kind of come out with uh, uh, a particular, um, you know, equation and algorithm and you think, okay, this is best for the team to let go of players at a certain time, right? But there's also, it's, it's a calculated move. It's, it's not certainly bulletproof, but uh, that that is certainly part of I think the process. When and some would say, well, maybe that's why Boston has been has been successful. And um, you know, we'll see if maybe other teams will adopt certainly the same philosophy. So to go back to sportscom here at Emerson College, uh, I remember very quickly, um, probably within a year of coming here in two thousand five. I thought, dang. I wish I was more into sports because we're starting to get spoiled. But all my friends who were in a, a broadcasting track similar to my own, they just had a lot more opportunities available to them because they could do news, they could do talk, they could do all the things that I could do, and they also could do sports broadcasting, which I had pretty much no interest in at all. I just grew up not really paying that much attention to sports. So I know that they would have loved to have participated in these sports communication programs that we have now. So tell me more about that. And then, you know, was the impetus for creating some of these programs just the fact that so many students were into sports, perhaps because of what was happening in Boston? Yeah, and, and I think it was, I mean, certainly being in Boston uh, was, was a big advantage. But I think what we're seeing nationally is a, a growth, uh, of certainly an increase in, in interest in sports communication as, as a subfield of communication or media studies. Uh, and you're seeing other programs, uh, other top comp programs, whether it's USC, University of Texas, Austin, uh, you know, Syracuse that have incorporated sports programs because I think we saw, as Emerson did, that there was a, a great interest um, from, stu- you know, from students that um, were interested not only in sports, but studying it as a uh, as this academic uh, intellectual field that can also provide a, very much a skills based uh, training to get them, you know, certainly in the best position to, um, you know, get, uh, you know, jobs, whether it's in a sports organization or working in sports media. But it was really just sort of an outgrowth of greater interest by by students. And uh, what's great about, you know, Emerson is, you know, being a being in Boston, it's is such a great sports town, not just a, a sports championship town, but the fact that, uh, you know, there's a very strong, thriving, as you know, sports culture here in Boston, and sort of like. And you kind of alluded to it earlier and talk about, well, you can't quit, you know, Yankees with Boston. It's almost, it's blasphemy, you know, and, and that's how strongly I think Boston fans are, how they feel about, about their teams. But that just really reflects a very strong, thriving sports culture. So with Emerson being right at the heart and center, literally, you know, in Boston Common, um, are surrounded by all these great sports franchises and sports culture that really lends itself then to, um, you know, greater opportunities for students uh, that are interested in working in sports, whether it's for a sports organization, whether it's for the Red Sox, whether it's for the Bruins, or whether it's for, in, you know, in sports media. But there's just such a flourishing and thriving sports culture and sports media here in Boston. And aside from all these great teams and opportunities that they, they lend itself, that it was just really a natural fit. Emerson say, well, you know, we've been hearing about students really interested in sports and 
and maybe they couldn't actually major in it or even minor in it. It was just sort of something that they had to do on the side, like you were saying, you had to study broad, you know, broadcasting or journalism, but really what they were interested in doing was sports journalism or was sports broadcasting. And so now with Emerson, we can actually offer uh, a very uh, personal, I, I shouldn't say personalized, but, but a very, very much a tailored program for those that are interested in sports, sports communication, sports uh, media. And so, you know, we have uh, different tracks. And so we have, you know, as, a, as an undergrad, you can say sports communication, but even within the sports communication major, you know, if you're interested more in sort of the business side, then you can certainly take courses in, in more of like a sports management versus if you're interested more in sports journalism or sports broadcasting, we also offer those, those classes really tailored to, to students interested in that side in sports media. Um, and then, uh, you know, we also offer a minor. So, you know, if you're not necessarily major, you know, if you are majoring in something else, political communication, but have an interest in sports, you can also minor in as well. Uh, and also in the in the graduate program, we have a, a, a public relations uh, master's, and one of the tracks is uh, is sports communication. So it's kind of really geared towards uh, sports communication and kind of strategic communications. Where you think of kind of this umbrella, particularly aimed at you know certainly the sports the sports field, and so. Um, you know, I think we're lucky that that we're uh, one of the few programs that offer a sports communication major, like just strictly just a major versus just a minor. Other programs, it's it's burgeoning, and you know there may be at the at the level of just offering a minor. But the nice thing is Emerson, we actually offer a, a sports communication major, right? And what better place to do it um, than in Boston, right? Probably the the top uh, sports town. Uh, in the U.S., right, and, and with all those championships to back it up, but but that's uh, th- that's what I think what makes um, you know Emerson and the sports program unique, and the fact that we are here in Boston that certainly gives I think Emerson uh, you know an advantage, right, with just that as I mentioned the sports culture um, and, and certainly having all these franchises and relationships, you know, so if students are interested in internships, um, they're working part time. I mean, they can do it and not have to travel too far, right? So. Um, you know, I was in uh, you know rural uh, sort of uh, upstate New York previously, and and you know it was difficult for students um, to be able to to intern or work during the school year because there was really no big city close by with any major sports franchise close by. So they have to often wait until the summer to engage in any kind of uh, 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 you know real long term internship. Um, but you know, being you know again, that's sort of one of the advantages of being in a in a big uh, sports town um, like Boston. That there's many different sports organizations, and I think it's just a great sports town, not just at the pro level, but even at the college level, the high school level. Right? It's, it's a you know, it, this is certainly a place where where sports is is really highly valued, and again, is really embedded in the, in the culture here and the fabric of, of the community. Campus on the Common is a production of the School of Communication at Emerson College. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Emerson College alumnus and podcasting professor Chance Dorland.